senoras y senores. I am your host. I am Ted King. And once again, thank you. Obrigado for listening to King of the Ride podcast. Now, I know I just slipped that in there pretty deftly. You had to be listening closely. That was, of course, Portuguese. No, not Spanish. And in a combination of having spent last week in Portugal and having spent the better part of the past decade living and racing overseas, I consider myself the tiniest bit of a linguist. But don't worry, because this will largely be an English-speaking podcast today. With those three Portuguese words, I think I've taxed my entire Portuguese vocabulary. Anyway, the Summer Adventures of 2018, they are off and running They are in full gear. We are flying. And that means no sooner had the wife and I arrived in New England, Laura and I promptly continued that momentum east and we arrived in Portugal, oh, I'd say 10 days ago, where we quickly, easily, comfortably, happily settled into the Ngamba Tours pace of life. Now, I know that we've mentioned Ngamba in past episodes and, and it's worth explaining it a tiny bit more here today based on today's guest. So Ngamba was started by a very good friend of mine and former teammate, Joao Correa, who is fascinating and is totally worthy of a podcast, but he is not who we speak with today. Hold your horses. So the year is 2010, and Joao and I are teammates on the Cervelo test team. We had both wrapped up a race, were a bit smoked, tired, in need of a rest and recharge, and he says, come visit me in my hometown, Lecky in Chianti. He had set up shop there over the course of that season, and he kept on raving about it subtly. I wanted to see it and no time better than the present. So a quick aside, 90% of the time, if you're a European-based pro, but you're non-European, you're going to set up shop in one of three cities. You're going to be in Girona, Spain, Lucca, Italy, or Nice in the south of France. All three spots are world-class, and they have the infrastructure with which to set up the foundation. They have the, the professional mechanics and professional soigneurs and, and the folks with which to motor pace. You can get by day-to-day, no problem. So there's a tiny bit of skepticism. I go and visit Joao because it's a town of 20 people. I'm like, what is this tiny town going to have that that these cities don't? And he shows me this crazy behind-the-curtain experience that is very much familial. Joao is he is a relationship guy through and through. If you know Joao, that's the one word he lives by. It's relationships. So he's not only shown me the people that he's, that he's discovered to have with which to have a massage and with which to have his bicycle maintained and with which to go motor pacing. But he's also having dinner at their house every night. He has been embraced by the community in Lucky and Chianti. And he shows me this crazy back of the napkin idea. He says, how do I take this experience, the professional experience that we have built up as pro cyclists to have the professional body maintenance and bicycle maintenance and motor pacing and, and exquisite Italian roads. How do you overlap that with the luscious food and wine that we are basically keeping at arm's distance because we're perpetually starved. How do you create just the perfect bicycle experience? And that is what he has done with Ngamba, overlapped with familial relationships. So transfer that to the Portuguese side, to the trip to Portugal that we just wrapped up. They have trips all throughout Europe and the one in Portugal, in northern Portugal we just did. That was amazing. It's sort of behind the curtain scene that we wouldn't get if you were a traditional bicycle tourist jaunting throughout Europe. That was amazing. Thank you, Joao. Thank you for what you've built up. Thank you, Ngamba. Can't wait to go back to another. Okay, now in keeping with the Ngamba theme, today's guest is the creative director at Ngamba, the one, the only, Mr. Jim Marathier. Now, Jimbo, as I like to call him, he was a photographer by trade, turned journalist, turned 
quite frankly, when you have a title of creative director at Ngamba, you wear about three dozen different hats. So he has a thousand different stories to tell. I hope you can pick up over the course of the interview. The dude is a wisecrack. He's a very good friend of mine. He's a very good friend of Laura's. Um, his <laughs> the first time we met is kind of a hoot. I think you're going to get a kick out of that story. Anyway, Jim Merrithew is today's guest. We had a great time last week. And quick clerical note, one reason you might pick up on a tiny bit of Portuguese that I picked up was because we did the interview in a public space. So you might hear a little bit of background noise. Please pardon that. As always, if you have any questions or comments or anything you want to say, please shoot them my way on all things social media. I am Ted King. Also shoot me emails at heistedking at gmail.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I really hope you enjoy the show. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen... If things go to plan, we will be launching this as episode number six of King of the Ride podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim James Merrithew, welcome to the show. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here for six. Six is basically the, you know, just like in marriage, the six is the hump. So this is where you go from being, is this going to work out or not? To like, oh my God, this is the greatest podcast in the history of podcasts. This is like... 9 p.m. on a Wednesday if you're in college. This is hump day. You're going to the bar. Everything's everything is smooth sailing from here on out for the rest of the week. Our grades gonna your grades gonna be good. Your grades gonna be bad. This is the point. This is the turning point for this podcast. Well, I currently have 21 five star reviews according to my friends at iTunes. I can't explain that, but I accept that. I don't know how many of those are from my mom. How many family members do you have? Like 17? 20. You can vote for yourself. Oh, oh, nice. Well, there you go. I would say uh, 21, 20. I think episode six should raise that number to 25 fairly easily. I think, I think that's a safe bet. So speaking of weeks, um, you've been here in Europe for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I've been here in Europe for, let's see now. This is my going on my seventh week. Of, Seventh uh, week, a little Tuscany, a little Portugal, a little Tuscany, uh-huh. and now a little Portugal, and now I go shortly uh, next week. I go to the mountains to the Dolomites, and then on to uh, back to Tuscany, Sardinia, Tuscany, and then I go home. Goodness gracious! So, all said and done, how long is that going to be? Uh, it was supposed to be seven weeks, but now it's going to be closer to ten and a half weeks. Okay. So a 10-week vacation to Europe. Well, the greatest job ever. I'm actually working, Ted. I know this This is a befuddler for a lot of my friends, but uh, uh-huh. I have to call this uh, this thing I do work. Otherwise, uh, the tax man comes looking for me. So we both have to qualify our jobs at, at times. Um, let's educate the listener. You are the creative director, the CD of Ngamba Tours. Is that correct? Yes. At the moment, I am, I am the creative director... Uh, I wear many hats, mm-hmm. but, uh, but my overall job title is indeed creative director for Ngamba tours. And I've been at that for it's just about two and a half years, uh, mm-hmm. while, uh, being somewhat related to what Ngamba does for just about four of the five and a half years they've been in existence. Well, I remember, I remember the first time we met. Do you remember the first time we met? I do, Ted. As a matter of fact, I I was uh, 
I was not yet working for Gaba Tours. Uh -huh. I was uh, I was working for a little blog um, post my existence as the photo director at Wired Magazine, uh -huh. and uh, I did an interview with you. Uh -huh for uh, my website elementally which uh i don't have a lot to do with at the moment but is still in existence and being run by a couple of very nice young men and uh if i remember correctly ted and get me if i'm wrong that you said that was the best interview you'd ever done i i hold that to this day elementally element dot l y scrappy little website scrappy little website it wasn't just in another interview uh the first time we met we had a round of speed dating because I won't even go into it. I think everybody should go visit it. It it remains as the best interview I ever did. Um, and rather than asking me a handful of sort of nonsensical questions or, or ones that might get a rote response, you asked me what, 10 or 15 speed dating questions, speed dating which questions. were excellent. You just, you'd basically just retired and, and answered. Not yet. Oh no. Oh, that's right. You were still a pro. And that's why I I mean, I got to interrupt because I had to go visit the website in order to do due diligence for this, this interview. And I saw that there was a follow-up interview, not interview, follow-up article about my retirement, which probably crashed the servers because that oh. was one of the non-endemics that covered my retirement. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a very interesting thing because, of course, you, I had gone doing due diligence for the interview mm -hmm. and had watched some of, you know, you, um, your tone when you were a pro was a slightly different than your post-career uh, tone. You, you know, you were... You were, uh, you know, what we'd say, an educated interview, and you didn't really, you don't really hold a lot of, uh, if someone comes with you with stupidity, you, you don't leave them a lot of room to, uh, to, to not leave with a pie in their face, if I'm saying that correctly. And I was Jim like, has had one sip of a Pliny. Yeah. What, so. what exactly do I ask Ted King that hasn't been asked? And does he put his toilet paper over or under? Seems like the perfect question. Over, under, toilet paper... Everybody should consider that when they are speed dating or in an interview. No, that was awesome. And it was what? I mean, presumably that was the beginning of the Ngamba days because you were brought along by the man himself, Joao Correa, owner, founder of Ngamba. Yeah, I had, I had, uh, I had done a trip. Uh, actually, I w had left Wired and um, taken this other job and it started elementally and got a call from uh, none other than Mark Reedy uh -huh. uh, of True Overdrive PR. And he was, uh, he said that uh, Joao was looking for a journalist. Uh, he was using the term loosely, of course, to go to Portugal on an Ngamba trip. And I, uh, and it was the same week as Interbike. So every actual bicycle journalist was in Vegas. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I got on a, I got on a plane and went to Portugal within Gamba for a week as a journalist. And then, uh, did a bunch of consulting and helped with the getting, you know, their photo archive and, and, and some of their press materials in order as sort of a, you know, walk up to getting the job offer. Nice. So you, Okay, again, due diligence. I was playing around over at Wired. I was playing, which, okay, I thought you were the you were the photo editor for one. Uh, I got hired uh, at Wired um, right as uh, Conan Ass had purchased Wired.com from from the Lycos and had brought it under the fold of Conan Ass 
uh, Conan S. Digital, um, the two had been separated, separate for many years. The magazine had been run by Con had been bought by Connie and run by Connie, but the website didn't belong to Conan S. Then, uh, I think it was 99. I, I interviewed for the job uh, and at the time I had no idea what the hell wired was, but, um, had gone over there and they said that they were, you know, they were, they wanted the, they wanted to bring the website up to speed and a wonderful man, Evan Hansen offered me the job. Um, and so I went to work for the internet, which was amazing at the time. Fledgling. Fledgling. In 99 was the beginning of that? Yeah, yeah, especially okay. for Wired. And we, over the course of the next six years, went from uh, eight million page views a month to 84 million page views a month. Holy cow. Um, and it was it was the it was an amazing time. Got to got to see the uh, Twitter become a thing and Facebook become a thing and uh, Instagram and all of the things that we now just take uh, for granted. At at the time that I started Wired, basically didn't exist or were uh, just becoming what they were. And uh, to be there for that time at such an amazing magazine and to run the photo department, I was the photo editor slash director of Wired.com for a while and then. And there was a big shakeup and for a very brief period of time my name was on the masthead for three or four magazines as wired photo director jim Matthews. so that's uh, even though it's not true that is the title that i use in my resume well that's exactly the question because there i was on the internet earlier today and according to wired you're an author <laughs> it said author jim Matthews and uh, this sorry. particularly article <laughs> was covering some tech technological things, covering bikes, I believe. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think of Wired as a technological magazine, one that revolves around technology. And there you are, presumably in the early days, already doing... Uh, uh, bike analyses, bike reviews. It, on it, it could wired. be. It could be. Uh, there was a. There was a period of time when Wired, as Wired grew, and as kind of as it became the 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 uh, the website, and at the at the end of my time at Wired, accounted for over fifty percent of the brand's profits, which was unheard of for kind of nast and. Um, so we were we were doing all kinds of things online. It was it was a, it was a, it was an amazing time to be uh, on the internet and at Wired. And Wired became much more of a cultural magazine. Then the the early subscribers to Wired will tell you that the magazine was ruined and it's not what is what it was. And uh, in the early days, it was almost unreadable. You know, they printed stuff silver print on silver paper, and <laughs> yep. you know, like it was a it, for the people who had the early editions of Wired. It, it is a very you know, strongly felt opinion that it went to shit. Uh, for those of you know, the, it had to, it eventually had to make money because uh, kind of NASA well, poured money into it. Early 2000s, this is not the era of Facebook where they're selling advertising. So if you guys are making a killing, how are you guys making money then? Well, a the, different style of advertising. So at, at that point, you know, there was a point, a period of time on the internet when, uh, you know, page views, you know, numbers, it became this huge funnel, the, you, the clickbait that we talk about now. At that time, like, the only way you could make any money is more people needed to visit your website. The more clicks you got, the more impression, ad impressions you got, the more ad impressions you got, the more money you got. And then Wired at one point, we decided that, you know, we... And and because Conan S was big enough, and and there were plenty of other websites doing it. wasn't Wired the only one doing this, but Wired then realized that what we needed to do is we needed to sell ad campaigns to specific advertisers 
so that they could be in front of the wired audience instead of generally getting a click. We, so the very first wired camp, which, uh, was both, uh, amazing and horrible. Uh, in a lot of ways we went, we, we got all the bike manufacturers to give us bikes. Yeah, like straight up press camp, right? Press camp, just like press camp. We, we, we brought in the bikes, we brought in the gear, we brought in the shoes, we brought in the nutrition. We all went and rented a Airbnb in, in, in the Russian river. And we spent four days, five days, six days shooting video and photos and writing stories and, and Olympus or Canon or one of the camera manufacturers gave us $250,000 in advertising dollars and another $5,000 in, uh, what they called, uh, you know, um, funny money to help you actually do the content. So they, that paid for the cabin and the food and the beer and the, and everybody shaved their legs, uh, mm -hmm. that hadn't shaved their legs. There was a lot of blood <laughs> in the, in the bathtub back then. Uh, and, uh, we basically, you know, we basically did, did a sponsored bike camp in, in, in the Russian river and the advertising department of course is completely excited because mm -hmm. they get the $250,000. We're excited because we get to do some original content and we, we talked about the science of bikes and we, you know, uh, I believe that's the very first carbon fiber frame I ever cracked. Another oh, great nice. story, but you know, <laughs> early, early phases of carbon. Yes. Um, well, okay. So speaking of bicycles and technology, by my account, I think I have eight batteries on my bicycle right now technology is is cruising in the cycling world yes you are technologically savvy yes what do you think of technology in cycling do you want it do you dislike it are you a luddite on a bike luddite? i think that we i i i uh oddly having worked for wired um you know, I'm not, I, I, I'm also a photographer, spent 20 plus years as a newspaper uh -huh. photographer before becoming an editor. And, um, I, um, have always been the kind of photographer that, that was better at the pictures than at the technology. I'm not the kind of guy you want to have go hang cameras in the rafters at the basketball game or put remotes on the end of a camera on the end of a plane wing or, right. uh, th that kind of thing has never really been uh, my forte. Um, but having said that, uh, I can now set my camera to fully automatic, have it choose everything, autofocus, auto exposure, auto bracketing, whatever those, you know, and 99% of the situations, it is as good or better than anything I've ever used in my entire life. Wow. Uh, technology in cameras is, and bicycles in the exact same way, the, you could buy a bad bike five years ago, 10 years ago, for sure. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, it'd be a little harder. And today it's almost impossible to buy a bad bike. Bike manufacturers can't make a bad bike or yeah. bad components. It's just not possible to, right. to survive. Um, there's a lot of 11 speed. What do you think about 12 speed? What do you think about, what do you think about electric shifting? What do you think about disc brakes? Are all of these things making the sport better, f more fun, more accessible, faster? Are they, I think the bicycle walls, I think the bicycle world, uh, if you spend any time covering bicycles, um, I was, I, uh, you know, there was a point in time when covering the bicycle industry meant that you were cynical, that that was, you know, your cynicism had to be, Oh my God, I can't believe that they're trying to foist this x thing upon us gravel bikes whatever it is fat tire bikes what whatever is the industry force feeding the right. user but, okay but the truth of the matter is is that the 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 consumer is very good in the long run about about 
figuring out what it is that they want. Right. And so there, there, I have clients at Ingamba. I luckily get, uh, I get to ride a Pinarel F10 with, with Wi-Fi, ETAP and, uh, and zip wheels and quark power meters and all of the good stuff. Cause I work for Ingamba. It's given to me and I, I don't really think about bikes in that way all for myself anymore, sure. but I have clients that will call and say, Hey Jim, you know, ceramic speed has just come out with these giant derailleur pulleys. Should I get a set? <laughs> they add four Watts. And I say to him, I say, well, what else are you going to buy? You're at the fucking bike shop. Excuse uh-huh. my language. No, we're good. You love bike crap. You love talking about bike crap. When you put those on your bike and you go to the coffee shop, mm-hmm. everybody's going to ask you, my God, man, you have some giant pulleys. Yes. And it is the greatest thing ever. And he'll be a front runner in that for that moment in time. And maybe ceramic speed doesn't make it. Maybe the pulleys don't catch on. Maybe they don't sell enough to stay in business. But for that moment in time, he's at the front end of the technology and he's happy about it. Do, do I run out and buy those because I want to be on the front end? I'm not that guy. But the, the industry will adjust. If gravel bikes are a thing, then everybody's going to build a gravel bike and they're going to continue to get better. If aero bars on gravel races, <laughs> God, let's hope not, well done. are a thing, uh, boom, uh, the, they'll get better and, and the consumer will, will demand because we, we, we no longer in the bike industry tolerate crap. Correct. And so I think all of the technology if at this moment makes your ride better, whether that be psychologically or actually, it, it doesn't matter. If you if you are, have the wherewithal to move to the next step technologically, you know, I mean, 3T comes out with a one by the team's got to ride them, and they're there. It's a three, aero bike. Mm-hmm. You know, is that going to be a thing? Well, we're gonna we're it's going to be determined very shortly. We're in the midst of figuring it out. Yep, I feel like I, f- I feel like a lot of. The- Oddly enough, the technology is trickling up from mountain biking. So the one by the disc brakes, the wider clearances, those things are going from mountain biking to road biking, which is a cool trend. I agree that it's the consumer who actually has a say now. And rather than being force fed the crap from the industry, the, the goofy this or that, that really it doesn't have sticking power, staying power, the consumer can see through it more. So that brings us to the question of gravel. Right. Gravel, I currently think is wonderful. I hope it continues to be wonderful. The entire sport will always be fluid. You've done fish rock. You've done grindero. You're a hip fella. What do you think? What well, do you think? I'm, you know, I'm I'm an I'm an old man, and uh, what's your age, Jim? I, I I'll be 53 in about four minutes. Okay. Uh, That's what's fun about gravel. It's a lifetime sport, man. Where's yeah. gravel going? What's it doing? Do you like it? You know, it's interesting because you know I, I grew up in Michigan. Where you know you only got on a gravel road if everything went wrong, <laughs> uh, you know. Like you know, uh, I think I think the thing is the thing that I like about gravel has nothing to do with gravel. It's it's about people testing themselves against other people. And you know, the early days of mountain biking. Everyone talks about the early days of mountain biking it was so great. It was grassroots. We all went camping and we drank beers and we hung out and it wasn't you know blah blah. And then all of a sudden, everybody's shaving their legs and you know it got quote unquote ruined and this got ruined and that got ruined. And and, and there are a lot of people that want to be competitive. Who the one thing that is almost universal with everybody that I know that rides a bike, they'd like it to be a little bit more pleasant. They'd like mm-hmm. to go a little faster 
than they're going. They like to go a little faster mile than they went today. Even if maybe they don't want to race, fitness is part of why we do this stupid ass sport. I mean, there's no, there's no. I mean, you, you know, if you if you if you're just riding a bike on a beach cruiser, you're not listening to this podcast. Correct. So obviously, you listen to podcasts because you want to go a little. You, 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 want, you like to have. You like to be able to sit on Ted King's wheel for five more minutes than you did the last time, and. And gravel, to me, is an opportunity for people to go and test themselves against other people, but also against the elements, right? This is the, you know, you, you don't have to worry about drafting for 55 minutes in a crit and hope that you can get your teammate in the sprint or you don't crash out or, you know, it's, or, the, or the hill climb. It's not about being the lightest and the lowest body weight and the highest, you know, power to weight ratio. It's, it's about what, how much fitness did you bring to today's event and can I have an adventure in a way that I couldn't have amongst other cyclists in any other capacity. And, and I think that's, that was the cool thing about Grinduro. You got to ride with your friends. It's an amazing, you know, with the three time segments, it's a really brilliant sort of thing. And in the end, you know, you go and you look at the numbers and you wonder how you did and were you on the podium or not on the podium? How did you do against last year? But actually, that post, you know, Strava, you know, segment world wasn't really what made that exciting. What made it so exciting was the day. The day it was a thing. Of course, the freezing year took us off in the tent the night before. Was right. So checking out results. Typically, you're already two or three beers in. It's three in the afternoon. You're getting ready to to eat some uh, raw, formerly raw meat that has now hit the grill. The entire weekend is what encompasses a grinder and yeah. makes grinder. It's awesome. got to be the same thing about Dirty Kanza, right? Yeah. You got to go to Kansas. Sure. I mean, you got to go to Kansas to do it. And even if you live two towns over in Kansas, you still got to go to the start. And and it's a it's a scene. It is it is the you know it's basically the beautiful part of what I mean. I think about these triathlons my wife used to do, and we we would get excited and we would go to the expo, mm-hmm. and it was. The most horrific, <laughs> just painfully horrible people trying to sell you some kind of lotion you're going to rub on your legs. Or oh, this and, is like an era before uh, uh, forearm and calf sleeves too. Yeah, bummer, man. What were they even selling? Yeah, I, know. Then? I know. I mean, you know, it Small does. Police. There is the whole like uh, you know the three booths now for the aero bars that they're trying to sell you. But I mean, that's that's sort of triathlon-y and it's is that the double decker <laughs> thing? What's the boost arrow bar? The boost. I, no, so, well, what, who was it? Canyon that came out yeah. with the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah double decker. Yeah. Okay. Double decker arrow bars. Uh, that, you know, and once again, oh. we, we've talked about this many times the, the death of gravel. <laughs> you, you, uh, uh it, well, you know, in the, the first year they won Dirty Cons, I distinctly remember reading on the forums Ted King kills gravel. That, but the beauty oh, I of, you made that up. No, no, I no. You God, the no, troll I'm not that smart. That. I'm not smart enough to make that up. Oh. I mean, you did kill gravel, but I didn't voice it. I just, I mean, I got in there and said, yeah, yeah you were like, right about like, that. Like, yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, boost that comment up. I appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure, Ted. I mean, you, you know, you former pro assholes just getting out there and ruining everything for everybody one uh-huh. event at a time. Well, yeah, that's part of the charm. But, okay. It's it's funny looking at traditional road racing. Yeah. Because exactly what you're saying, like if you're gonna race a crit, you have to be very specific. Either you have the best sprint you're gonna do well, or you have to be opportunistic and, and time your breakaway just right. If it's a road race, then 
you got to be a little bit crafty, but by and large, the best strength to weight ratio is going to win. So it's very calculated. Whereas gravel's like, well, yeah, but the thing you got to remember, this is the thing that's fascinating to me is like, the, and the th this is the thing that uh, gentlemen like yourself and uh, and a lot of my friends, you know, I uh, when I look at my Strava segments to see how I did against my 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 the people I follow, I'm you know if there's 25 people, I'm usually 24th or 25th. Because then I look and I'm following Ted King and Joel Correa and Manuel Cardoso and uh, but that you know this is the you know how this is the big push for gravel. Gravel is an amazing thing right now and, and it's moving from grassroots to a little bit more mainstream. But how does gravel not um, lose that? that grassroots that lovely come have a have a hot dog you know drink a beer with people and you know let's go out and just let's brave the elements and see what our bodies can do against this stupid elements and i think there's still a, you know I, I think the the concern of course is that there's this constant talk in every segment of cycling is how do we get more people involved sure and i'm like well you get more people involved by making sure that when they come to an event like grind duro they come to an event like 30 Kanza, that the person at the back is 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 having the same time of their lives is the person at the front and that is a hard thing to do because in the end it's we're talking about it's a competition and i feel like if that is the case, then that is what continues to trend well in gravel, because if you have, let's just for, for sake of argument, say there's a thousand people. If you're hyper competitive and you're in the top 10%, you're in those top 100, like you're really duking it out with each other, or the hyper sharp end of the, the point, there's 10 people really duking it out. Right. The person who's going to finish 999th or 1,000th knows that they're not going to be competing right. in the in the top 10%. So quickly within gravel, you find your, as we like to call it, you find your tribe and you find your people and you find your people that you're competitive with. So whether you're 999th, 500th, or first, like you are competitive with those people. And I think it's the mass rollout, the mass start that is currently making it fun. You're right. You need to arrive with a little bit of excitement and, and you know anxious anxiety, excitement. And leave with it. You need to have this whole yeah. weekend adventure thing. Yeah. And I think most of the problem is most people who show up with the idea that they're going to have this adventure that don't have the knowledge mm -hmm. of what their body, body is capable of, then instead of being excited, they leave you know, twisting in the wind because you know, because it is hard. Sure. Riding okay. 200 miles on gravel, uh -huh. regardless of your fitness level, uh -huh. regardless of where you finish first or last, is hard. It's in, right. And so we talked about this recently with the, the true king of Kansas, Dan Hughes, who has won four Dirty Kansas. What, what, I, what podcast episode would that have been, Ted? He was two? I think he was Ted two. doesn't really know, but you should go back and look at the list oh, now. It's definitely uh, a, a couple of podcasts back because it was a really, really good interview. Thank you. He points out that unlike a century, which certainly is a challenge, that doing something really over the top, like a grinder, like a dirty Kansas, that is the cycling equivalent to a runner's marathon. Anybody could go out and go walk a good long way, do a 5K, a 10K, but a marathon is a true undertaking. You're going to feel punished. True. A century, you put enough time and patience into it, I think the majority of our listeners can get through a century. Then you got to do something really over the top, like a 200, like a dirty Kansas, like a 
trans Iowa like these absurd things. So, so what is the what? Is, but then what is the entry level drug for the dirty? I mean, you it's know, the fifty. It's, it's the hundred. Right. Okay. So so like I was just saying, you have to arrive with a little bit of excitement and angst. You want to leave with the excitement and angst, regardless of how your race went. Tell us, walk us through your grinder, because obviously it must have been a highlight being the tent mate of yours truly. Ah, the Ted. I let you borrow one of my bikes. Yes, you did. It was amazing. Amazing. It, it was in a state of disrepair that I was. It turns out with. that Ted King uh, recently retired. Uh, just assumed that someone must have come to the house. Yeah. And and tuned his bike and because it was clean. Because, because yeah, because it looked clean. When clean it, means the crank won't yeah. fall off. The, it turns out. Uh, it turns out riding grinder with a crank that's not actually attached to the frame all the way. Uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating event. Did you uh, open gear ratio, though? Mm, you know, it's interesting because I wrote it on, once again, on Elemently. Uh, I started a series, and I'm going to finish that when I, I'm actually going to build myself a Grinduro bike when I get home. So any... Uh, Grinduro 2019? Yeah, Grinduro 2019. I'm, I'm working on my entry, the uh, Mark Reedy. Uh, <laughs> right. And uh, Cannondale, too, uh, Cannondale, uh, SRAM, SRAM, SRAM. Uh, actually, uh, Chris Sigmund. Um, uh, I wrote a series of stories about what bike would you ride, and I and I was interviewing some people, and I actually did a really fun interview with Chris Sigmund from SRAM, talking about the bike that he built specifically for Grinduro. Go to Elementally and read that little piece. Uh, he's an absolutely amazing human being and, and, a, and a lovely guy, and uh, gave me some insight and. You know, um, we had a in, in our small group. We had an incredibly varied group of bicycles for the mm -hmm. Grinduro. Mm -hmm. Had a, uh, somebody on a hardtail mountain bike, somebody on a softtail mountain bike. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry about getting your mountain bike stolen, Corey. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and then I, of course, was on this. The slate, Cannondale slate, uh, which is, which I I learned to love. It was a, it, I, I would say my Grinduro experience. Um, uh, I seem to uh, Ted coached me for a little while before he gave up. I seem to go. We do through, need to get uh, into that. Uh, I do. I go through um, uh, what we call fitness phases. phases my, my job gets is a little um, precarious for fitness, and I'm also. Um, uh, not as focused on these things as I once was, but uh, I would say um, it was. I, I, I cried a little. I mm -hmm. cheered a little. Mm -hmm. I I, uh, I liked some sections better than other sections. I'm grateful to have the bike handling skills that I have because I think that made up for a lot of lack of fitness. Um, <laughs> uh, there were a lot of people out there that had some difficulty staying on their bikes, yep. which makes uh, makes a day on the bike really hard. I, I can ride all I can ride all day and cry all day, uh, but I can't fall off my bike. Like it's uh, those are very sharp rocks. Yeah, those. Yeah, Quincy, California. What do you call them? I guess sort of northern Sierras. Yeah. Those are not soft Appalachian moss. Yeah, and there seem to be a lot of people that um, ride their bikes uh, with with. With you know a lot of flats and broken stuff, and uh, those things can make for a really long day. I'm grateful that none of that happened to me. Um, in the end, I started with my friends and I ended with my friends, and all of the heartache in the middle was sort of washed away from me. And uh, and what else did you ask for? And at any point in time when I thought I was having a miserable day, I usually looked left or right and realized that you know everybody's having a fucking miserable <laughs> day. So you know. Uh, suck it up and keep pedaling yeah well great great testament right you didn't win the thing 
you didn't get last place. You had a good time. You drank some beers. You ate some burgers. You you. I might have to camp out. Like I might have gotten last place, and and frankly, I I don't give a rats. That I there's there, no there way was, you got. There was there there was. Uh, I think the thing for me is, I, 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 once again, going back to my age, I seem to have skewed towards the much older part. It seems to be that particular activity in general attracted a 20-something sort of uh, vibe. But, yeah. but having said that, uh, I felt included yeah. at, in, at every step. At, at the dinner table, at the at the fire pit, at the uh, on the bike ride, um, at the post ride celebration, um, and um, I don't I don't want to think that I'm old enough that I have to feel young. This was the you know I, I thought I fought with that a little bit uh, on the way back. Does this just make me feel young and I'm just an old coot? And uh, you know sleeping in a tent certainly. <laughs> That's throwback. That was fun. Shoot, I haven't camped in years. Yeah. So uh, I would say I would say. This type of event, the if you're wondering whether you should race or not, or whether you should try these stupid things, fish rock or uh, any of that, um, you know, as long as you can, as long as the, the demons come in your head. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You, those voices, and I think it may be true for you too. Is this true, Ted? Sometimes you get some voices in your head during during concerts. You're like, what the hell am I yeah. doing out here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later in the day, but yeah, you're like, oh, what a terrible idea. And then you cross the finish line, you're like, shoot, yeah, that sure. was a freaking blast. Yeah. I think, to your point, the hardest thing, yeah, you're going to suffer out there, but like the hardest thing is putting the number on for the first time and signing up for the first time. And, and Well, it's not just that. I mean, it's it's interesting because climbing Vontu, uh-huh. you know, we climb Vontu every year with Ngamba, Eros Poli won that stupid stage, and it is the dumbest climb in the history of Tour de France climbs, <laughs> and I've been up quite a few of them, but... Um, uh, you know, plenty of people ask me, like, can I do it? I'm like, yeah, anybody can do it. I mean, almost anybody. I mean, if you ride a bike and you know what components you have on it and how much tire pressure you have, there's there really nothing in cycling you, you cannot do. It's just a matter of, like, how to make it more fun and to and to quiet the demons in your head to, to get it done. Truth. Truth. Okay. Um... Now, there's a lot of things that I know about you. See? I know you're from, born and raised in Michigan. See? Uh, photographer. Like, I don't know, for example, where, did you go to college? Uh, I went to my high school counselor, uh-huh. Catholic school, in a little town called Traverse City, Michigan. Uh-huh. I said to her, Lovely said, town. Cherry season. I had gotten addicted to photography when I did a uh, some kind of class report or something in, like, the eighth grade. And I told my high school counselor, I said, I, I want to be a photographer. Uh-huh. This sweet little nun, God love her, behind the desk whose name I can't remember. She's about 182 years old. And she <laughs> spoke the most wise words I've ever heard. And it took me years to realize how smart she was. She said, Jim, photography's not a career, it's a hobby. Uh-huh. <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> yeah, on the spot. So uh, I disregarded what she said, and I went to art school at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh uh, for a year. I... And- AIP, yeah. that's right, baby. Uh, and it's like I, MIT, but of the art yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, no, it's nothing like MIT, Ted. Mm. It turns out I was on the dean's list three semesters in a row. Congratulations! Uh, having not done any of my homework and um, mostly not even really attending class, and I realized at the end of the third semester, when I was announced I was on the dean's list again, 
this was not going to bode well. It was the me. other Jim Merrick. <laughs> it, was, it was basically, I was going to, it was, I was going to allow me to be the manager of a one hour photo when I graduated. I was ah. super excited about, it was pretty clear that these people were not really interested in helping me with my, my long-term goal. So I left there and went to the University of Cincinnati, go Bearcats, mm -hmm. uh, where I uh, spent seven years as a freshman. Uh, Brilliant. You and, uh, and after that, I started my, my uh, fledgling newspaper photography career. Uh, I, stay, I, I worked at uh, nine uh, Midwestern newspapers in a, over the course of the next, uh, I think, eight years or Did so. Did you ever take equity in these companies? No, most of these companies were, the very first one was in a little town. My very first job, I just like, uh, I took this job because the, the guy was super nice to me. Uh, super, the, the, he owned the newspaper and he owned almost the entire town of Portland, Indiana, which ah, most of your the other listeners Portland. won't know. Portland, right on the border of Portland, uh, Indiana and Ohio. Is it, uh, is it a port town? The Portland Commercial Review, and it is, it is not a town, my friend. But uh, but the people three people ran this newspaper and it was the it was I was only there a very very short period of time uh, but they were unbelievably sweet to me and it, it was the it was the start of my love of documenting life uh -huh. uh, uh, even much more so than what I learned when I was in college and in my internships but uh, and then uh, you've got a knack you you take. Like you said, you could take a modern-day camera, and it's going to take better pictures than any camera that you, that you used 10 years ago. Oddly enough, I use my modern-day telephone slash camera, and I take pretty crappy photos. So, like, you take great photos. You have Ted, Ted I was eye. once Indiana Photographer of the Year. I mean, oh I don't gosh. know if you know that about me or not, but... I yeah, didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. I'm sure my name's on a plaque somewhere in uh -huh. my garage. Oh, that is amazing. Ah, amazing. Uh, and then, of course, I left uh, the Midwest and took a job as the page one photo letter for the San Francisco Chronicle, mm -hmm. which was a big deal. Uh, but, of course, it was at the time when the papers were merging, and it was a very tumultuous period in journalism, and, and in particular in San Francisco. What year are we? Early 90s? Uh, Mid-80s? I think, I think we're, we're going to have to correct the earlier, because I think I might have gotten the 99 mixed up. I just like to know yours. I, land, I landed in at, at the Chronicle in '99, and I started at Wired in 2007, 2008. Oh, that was the burgeoning years of the internet at Wired. '99, and we were covering the internet from the Chronicle. Wow. But I didn't go to Wired until 2007, 2008. Did you cover the internet on behalf of the Chronicle, finishing every article with? Uh oh, we should probably get on this bandwagon. <laughs> the newspaper industry. It was interesting because the gate, uh, San Francisco Gate, was the was literally the quintessential. That was run by a different group of people than the newspaper, just like a lot of them were. The, the SF Gate was uh, was a completely different editorial arm, and they were the king of the clickbait. They were one of the very first websites in in the United States, in the world, actually, to identify that pictures of cute cats and Uncle Joey getting kicked oh, in the crotch by right. a donkey uh -huh. was a huge hit. And the newspaper was completely embarrassed about their website and tried to ignore them. And the, and the website knew that they were onto something and completely yeah. ignored the newspaper. It was an amazing time in journalism, for oh, sure. fascinating. Yeah. Well, other things I only vaguely know about you, switching gears entirely. Yes. Your... Mother or maybe both your parents were were uh, 
my innkeepers pa- yes. in Vermont. My, my which parents is a transition ran, because ran, Laura and I are moving to Vermont. Ah, Vermont, lovely Vermont. Right. Hancock, Vermont. Hancock. My parents ran a vegan bed and breakfast uh-huh. before anybody even knew what the word vegan meant. Sure. In Hancock, Vermont, and it was a it was a huge hit. It makes uh, hunting hard for for it, yeah, the, evening protein. Yeah. yeah. But the moose were safe around yep. the, and my mother was uh, went full vegan. My aunt and uncle and my mom and dad ran the place, and my aunt and uncle were vegan, and my mom joined them being vegan. But my father would drive across the mountain to the hamburger place at the college where uh, Middlebury. Middlebury drove across the mountain to Middlebury oh, to the hamburger A&W. place. Yeah, yeah, A and W. He would buy hamburgers and French fries, and he would go back across the mountain, and he would stand outside the kitchen window. And bang and, on the window and make my uncle watch him eat a hamburger. Wow. The vegan chef. Ah, oh, I thought you were going to say, went outside the kitchen window and washed up before he walked to the house or else he'd get reamed no, no, for no, smelling he, of he, he made my uncle meat. try to watch him eat a hamburger. Ah. They had quite a relationship. So how long is it going to take for you to visit the Kings up in Vermont? Uh, I don't really fly over that part of the country anymore, Ted, for fear of landing. And we have all sorts of good Ingomba guests in that neck of the woods. No, no, I'm a huge fan of Vermont, and I'm excited to hear that you're moving to Vermont. if you're going to get on an airplane, you would just prefer to fly all the way to California. No, no, no. I... I, uh Gosh, you know, it's it's complicated. I have so many wonderful, wonderful friends that are clients of the Ngamba brand who live in these amazing places around the world, uh, around the states, um, Sun Valley and, uh, you know, Mammoth and uh, Whistler and... Uh, Woodstock, Vermont. In Richmond, Virginia with the mm-hmm. butlers, you mm-hmm. know, and they all... All sorts of good spots. They're all, they all um, are kind enough to ask me if I'll come stay with them and... Uh, of course, the issue, of course, is when you spend seven or eight years, seven or eight weeks in Europe in the middle of summer and four in the spring and four more in the fall, mm-hmm. you know, going anywhere but home ends up being. Mm. So when we get together, Ted, it'll be on an Agama trip, hopefully Spain. Naturally. Uh, or Portugal. or you could opt to come east around October 20th and come oh, to the King Challenge, the King where we have Challenge. no shortage of wonderful friends and guests from Ngamba. Who I, I hear that King Challenge is quite a big, uh, quite an awesome. You had unbelievable weather just it's last booming. year. Is this yeah, right? last year was mid 70s on October 21st last year. And you're um, raising money for a really, really good cause. Terrific, the best. King Challenge raises money for the Kremple Center. Kremple Center. Uh, you have a personal family connection yes, with, is that right? Yes, sir. Uh, Dad had a stroke 15 years ago, so the Krempel Center benefits for adults with brain injury. Uh, it's a wonderful facility over there in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and it's been a wonderful benefit to the King family. Dad attends three days a week. He is the original Ted King, the senior, as opposed to his father, who is also an Edward King, but he went by Ed. Dad went by Ted. Most of my life, I was Teddy. Ed, Ted, Teddy, that's right, the, yeah. the triple whammy. Having met the entire King family at the uh, at the nuptials, yeah, yeah. I have to say that the the old man is a the Teddy's a chip off the old block. The the Ted, uh-huh. not Teddy, uh-huh. uh, Ted Senior is quite the uh, card. Yeah, yeah, he was on form. He he is eloquent to say the least, and he was. His toast was fantastic. Yeah, his toast was amazing. And uh, the other thing I really like is that mom, uh-huh. who uh, prior to the stroke, of course, you know, they've been married how many years now, Ted? Oh, my gosh. Don't ask me that. Uh, they're coming on 50. So the Kremple Center, Kremple's. Kremple Center has allowed mom, uh, dad to continue to live a pretty good life and mom to continue to be able to roll her eyes at dad. Yes. I mean, this is, that is, I mean, impressive. Yes. It, she... 
when dad stood up to talk, you never know. Okay, often with a brain injury, there's a there's a filter that's thrown out the window. So all of your inhibitions, not all, but a lot of your inhibitions are gone. So you'll say things that sometimes could be considered um, crass or impolite in public. So after a drink or two, and it's time to say a toast, my dad hobbles up to the mic. You never know what's going to come out of his mouth, and that's why mom politely stood up there and was was prepared yes prepared, prepared to, to yank the microphone away yank from the mic the, but he did he did a, i mean it was yeah it was a i mean it was probably a, it was a tear it was a tearful moment it was a he was a spot on no he was on point it. dad do, you're do awesome. you think that maybe this is what laura king was implying that my issue was maybe she thinks i've had a brain injury <laughs> <laughs> laura likes your Occasional snark. Ah, snark. Occasional. She likes my snark occasionally. <laughs> I think is what you mean, Ted. Yes. I think I think you got that. You got those words juxtaposed the there, but I, I get it. Okay, so, Jim, your mind works a million miles an hour. You are often crafting ideas for me about how to. I mean, shoot, you probably said you know three years ago. Hey, Ted, this podcast thing is going to hop on. Maybe you should do an episode three years ago. Right next to me is the Ingabo magazine, which is not some fly-by-night crappy magazine. This is a proper publication. The thing is beautiful, filled with your photography and your words. You are you are eloquent uh, in your own right. It's very sweet. I, I have a I have an unbelievable team. Yes, which consists of a tiny, tiny group of people. Uh-huh. Uh, Beatrice Severis is the designer uh, and the keeper of the branded Ingamba, and then the ever thoughtful yet. Uh, Interesting Irishman, Collie O'Brien, sure. who just wrote a book about the Giro, is our uh, our Ngamba writer. So, correct. You are showering praise upon your team, which is wonderful, and that's not what I'm trying to do here. The sport of cycling, the sport of traditional road racing, is kind of boring because it's often predictable, because the stages are too long, because no shortage of reasons. So, Jim Marathew, how do you save road racing? Well, I think the real issue is the real issue with sport in general is that we've all become so it's it's all been scrubbed. You know, this is the nobody wants the un. You know, I mean, when someone gives an interview where they actually say something interesting, uh, it's it blows up. I mean, it's like holy fuck, he just said. You know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, I can't believe he just said that. But, but the truth of the matter is, that we, we we. Who is it? Gaggioli? Yeah, Roberto Gaggioli. I was, I was, right, I'm trying to think of all the, the number of things that are actually uh, outside of the norm, whether it's an interview or the headline story in a in so-and-so news.com. Right. So Gaggioli takes a two-by-four and hits it over Johnny Sun's head. I believe it was Johnny Sun. Johnny and I were teammates briefly. Uh, or the somewhat outlandish things that Mark Cavendish has said. Or there was a time that Jonathan Page and Tim Johnson got into a little post-cyclocross race fisticuffs. And people are like, oh my gosh, did he really say that? Did that really happen? And I'm with you. Like, we need a lot more excitement. Well, this which, is part of the reason why Peter Sagan, of course, has become bingo. so popular, right? This uh-huh. is the thing. Like, one, one, one this is what I always say when I'm, when I'm talking to a, to a young writer. Or, or, or even an old writer, anybody who's writing something for me, or they're asking my opinion, it's not how we're different that makes us interesting. Mm-hmm. It's how we're the same. So when someone says to me, when I say, well, what about Ted King? Or, or, or in that vein, like, he's so fast. I see he suffers. Like, he suffers just like you suffer. He suffers at a faster pace maybe than you do. But it's not, it's, he's going faster, but it's not any easier. 
right? And so he puts his pants on one leg at a time. And he's married. He has issues, and the kids got to be fed. And the, you know, the the this, you know, I always said if you want to do a really great documentary project and you're doing a story on somebody, if you have not photographed them in their kitchen and in their bathroom, you have not done your job. And that doesn't mean there's a picture to be made in the kitchen or the bathroom, but you've not been invited into their lives in a way that you meaningfully have spent time with them so you understand who they are, then you're not done your job. And I think with this day and, in this day and age when we're, we're churning this stuff out at such a fast pace, we don't really have time to get to know anybody. Like, you know, the interviews, just like this podcast. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't know what color underwear I'm wearing. Or well, I, I thought you were wearing your underwear at lunch earlier today. Oh, Turns right, out those were right. your, that was your swim actual trunks, yeah. swim trunks. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't agree more. One of my favorite podcasts was Mike Creed. Before podcasts were popular in the past three years or so, Mike yeah. Creed, I think he started in probably 2014. Mike Creed of... Uh, uh, Former uh, U.S. Postal. Yeah, yeah. Now Former he runs Postal a Volo and 48-time national champion. Super nice guy. Great guy. He, when he was... Sports directing uh, Mountain Khakis, I believe it was called at the time, Smart Stop. You'd sit down and interview, and literally you'd be 20 minutes into the, in, into the conversation when you would, I, you would ask, hey, Mike, when are we going to start doing this podcast? And he's like, we've been recording this whole time. And you're like, oh, shoot. Like, this is real. And it made for a totally different interview. It made yeah. for very yeah. real conversation yeah. as opposed to sitting down. I mean, Jim, I don't know if you know this. We're recording right now. No way. Yeah. Uh, but it's true. This is real. I, mean, the, I mean, the real truth of the matter is, is it's the same thing. I mean, the truth of the matter is you don't know when somebody's going to say something interesting. You can't, you can't, when you, when you hear something really thoughtful or you see a photograph that's beautiful or you watch a video clip that's amazing, you couldn't have drawn it. You couldn't have imagined it. You couldn't have, you couldn't have made it happen even if you wanted to. It just, it, it, it's magic. Mm -hmm. And when the magic happens, you have to be there. The problem is, is that we, we, we have, we have as a society already decided what's cool. Oh, the picture of this rainbow with the sunset and the thing and the person. It's a double rainbow. And, and this is why at Ngamba, you know, we have some amazing photographers that make pictures for us. And I don't try to shoot the pretty pictures because I'm not very good at it. I try to capture a little slice of what it's like to be in the life of a bicycle. And this is a, this is, this is, and the picture may not be perfect. It may be backlit. It may be, it, you know, it may be, uh, not perfectly composed. It may not even be a great file, but when it has that thing, everybody knows it. Right. So when you, when you hear the interview with somebody and you're like, my gosh, that just struck a note with me, mm -hmm. you would have, it's because they said something you would never have guessed they were going to say. I'm 100% with you, and, and I'm scrolling through my phone right now looking at Gampur's IG Instagram feed because I think you perhaps curate a decent amount of this. I, work, I see what you mean. They're very real photos. I work for the most thoughtful, crazy, former publishing guy on the planet who lets me be me uh -huh. in a way that allows Ngamba to have a visual voice as well as a word voice in the magazine that is not based on ROI, not based on sales numbers. It's not based on desperation or, or glossy slickness. It's based on, we love what we do and yep. we want to share it with, I think every, I, I know this, and this is my little pitch. Everybody should do an Ngamba trip. Uh, you know, if, 
if it's within your means because it's a, it's just a great way to spend a week. But that has to do with the love of the bicycle, the love of just trying to live life right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we did that. It's Grinduro in the tent. Like, I mean, this, it's the same sort of thing totally. to go to Grinduro, drive all the way out there, set up the tent, sleep in a sleeping bag, you know, eat whatever schmock food that we've had. We were living the life. And I think that that's, it's an amazing gift in it. And there's all kinds of trends right now with that, with the idea that, you know, experiential travel is more important than owning a car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you see the the cross section of that with van life. Exactly. Uh, you're right. There's something. It's the unattainable or not unattainable. It's the just out of reach. Yes. It's the, yeah. An Ngama trip takes uh, a little bit of cash and or a flight. The Grinduro it takes a little bit of uh, due diligence to get up there. But you're right. It's like you're you're seeking something that's just right on the other side and you don't need just another cool bike leaning photo or awesome vista or mountain photo it's like you're gonna you're gonna which brings earn a full something circle real. to the question from earlier if i can just return to that how to save technology cycling? technology oh. or or save technology technology is to enhance the experience not to get in the way of it and so if you mm. if you find yourself with eight batteries on your bike and you're more focused on the eight <laughs> batteries yeah. and making sure that your blinky light and your cameras and your and your and the ends your stravas are being recorded correctly and your power meter and all that yeah. and you forget that the being on the bike is the good part sure right and if you have an amazing bike and it's a, you have an expensive you have all the toys and you can release yourself from the the the, the delivery system to yeah. actually be on the bike. Fine. If you find, you know, so many times now, like the f- the focus is to make sure that you got your power numbers and your heart rate and your and and, and your and getting the cool vista and getting the cool and vista. Chuck it on the Strava. So here's a a, a two parter. Uh, we had a Cannondale Athlete Summit in January. We had road, cyclocross, mountain riders, and gravel folks like myself. So there we are in uh, Pasadena, California. January, and Mark Weir is there, and Mark Weir, a mountain bike legend. Point being, oh yeah, Mike Weir, yeah, right. He's he he's riding the Alps. He's all over Europe, and he didn't put a single ride on Strava. He didn't put a single photo on Instagram. He's like, I was there for the experience. I, I absolutely loved it. So then he made fun of us all week as we are riding all over the Pasadena Hills and, and, and you know, taking photos and we have to stop and Strava and yada, yada, yada. Punchline, delivery question here. Do yes. you think Chris Froome has fun on the bike because he is always staring at his power meter? Well, I think that, I, I mean, if you would ask me before the 2018 Giro, do you tell you what I thought of Mark uh, Chris Froome? My opinion, you know, I was... Like, but I mean, that dude rode the bike like a, like, like a star of old. Mm -hmm. I mean, he rode with passion. He rode with aggression. Mm -hmm. He even had his victory atop, uh, uh, climb. Was it the Zonkalon, right? The Zonkalon. I mean, he looked like tunnel. He looked like a, you know, he was impassioned. Well, not that, but he sat up straight. His arms didn't look gangly. He didn't look like a cartoon character. (laughs) I mean, Chris Froome is now, I mean, I, I, you know, say what you want about what's happening with the sky thing and blah, blah, blah. And the, but I mean, you know, I, I I enjoyed the shit Mm. out of the Giro because of Chris Froome, not just Chris Froome, of course. I mean, there was, there was a lot of really great stories within all of that. And that's what was fascinating. 
if you take Chris Froome out of the equation entirely, let's pretend he, he A, didn't start, or B, crashed, crashed out when out. he did crash yeah. on the stage before. Yeah. It was still a great race. Ah. And then, ah. on account of him losing so much time, I mean, I conjectured, and I still sort of stand by this, that he purposefully lost time going into it in yeah. order to make for a fascinating Giro, in order to make people cheer for him. Because otherwise, if he just shows up in another Grand Tour, it's like, eh, roll your eyes, Chris Room's going to win. Well, He made a really interesting and, race. And I would say, I would say, this is the thing that I would say. I told this to, to a blogger friend of mine who's still writing this, these blog posts that are, you know, you know, smacking of the days of Lance when everybody just all of a sudden hates cycling, especially in the U S right. Right. All of a sudden everybody was a critic and everybody's a doper. And everybody's could he do that? Could he not do that? I've decided that I'm a fan. Mm. I'm an enthusiast. I think the sport of cycling is amazing. I think it's unbelievably hard to ride your bike 10 miles. I, I, not, not <laughs> 10 not, miles, let alone 10 miles. Not three weeks. Giro stage, not to win a Giro stage, not to win the Giro, <laughs> but riding the bike is with any kind of aggression, with any mm -hmm. kind of passion is hard. And, and these people have chosen since they were nine or seven or 12 or whatever age it was that they became a passion with the sport, that this is what they want to do with their lives. And every one of them I've ever met, are bitter and angry because being a professional cyclist means you have to put up with all this crap on the forums and comments on the Instagrams and the social channels and the constant being underneath this telescope of, of right. what is a doping sport, like yep. whatever. Yeah. But, but I don't care. I love the sport. I, 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 when I watch a movie and this is an argument, cause of course you're not supposed to do this, right? You're not supposed to disconnect. You're not supposed, but I look at cycling and I say, well, I'm hoping they're clean. I'm hoping that this whole thing's just a big controversy. And I hope the people that are doping the hardest, the, you know, are not winning are the stages. Are the 53 year old masters racers. Yeah. The master racers from Southern California with all the tattoos. What the <laughs> fuck? Uh, rock racing. Uh, you know, the, uh, but, but for me, I, I, I want to believe that, that they're, they're just dudes who are trying to make a living riding their bikes and they bring so much enjoyment to us. Yeah. Like I, I ride this, I've, I've ridden the Diablo and Gibraltar and you know, whatever. Noteworthy Bantu, climbs in California. Whatever. If you're not or, from or Europe, you know, uh -huh. I've been up a lot in the, you know, the Campolongo and the, uh, the Pordoi and the Celeronda. Uh -huh. uh, and then I see these, these athletes, these young men do the same thing. And it is just like, I mean, they've turned the air conditioner on. I'm freezing cold. Why are they going so fast? Yeah. Come back here, you know, and it is, uh, it's it is with, the sport is with much joy. Same as watching you cross the finish line at dirty concept, stupidest fucking race on the planet. Nobody should go out there to Kansas. Don't follow Ted King to Kansas. It's just a terrible idea. But, and, and the crying Duro where I said, I enjoyed myself. No, it's a, it's a, it's a horror. You sleep in the cold. You ride some stupid bike that doesn't work correctly over like it's a, it's a horrible thing, but, at the same time, like, you know, you could be collecting stamps. Okay. Yes. This is, the, uh, or baseball cards or, or playing shuffleboard, but no, you, you're involved in one of the greatest sports with some of the greatest people. And, and we volunteer to do it. It's our flying. fun. It's our, yeah. it's our emotional release. It's like such a input of motion. It's, it's like, it's our, it's recreation and so much more. Yeah. And if you've got something to say bad to say about somebody who's, who's trying to do it, regardless of your feeling, get off the forums and go collect stamps. Leave us the fuck alone. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> move along. I, yeah, you said it in the beginning and the past five minutes have been a wonderful unpouring of verbal diarrhea. I'm a fan of the sport.
you're a fan of the sport. Like it's it's why we end up on so and so news.com. It's right. why we end up right at the dinner table talking about cycling. It's why we talk about gear ratios. It's nerdy as hell, but we freaking love it. So yeah, stop hating. Hours hours talking about boa closures or you know what I mean yeah. like derailleur pulleys or you know and and Four watts, gear man. ratios and and I you know and I think I, it's okay. I mean I, I can understand a little bit of hate, but the uneducated part of it is what really just you know. I mean you know let's you know we don't we don't have to we don't have to make excuses for certain periods we just have to understand it's you know let it go let's you know it's sport that still doesn't answer the question how do we save road racing i'm with you peter sagan in the current era he can get away with it because he's hands down the best cyclist of our generation but he can't, he can't save the sport the problem the well, real I'm issue saying, is like he can get away with doing the grease thing and being goofy as hell yeah, but that's saying, not the problem the problem is is that he's the only personality in sport right now and the only personality in the sport right now if, as far as the media is concerned right they treat peter sagan like a like a like a hollywood star mm -hmm. and everybody else gets treated like a cyclist how about it's, uh oh man katana no 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 the 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 former boxer sprinter for oh uh, Viviani no. no French a French sprinter do they have a French guy that can sprint no nah, you got it you got the wrong sport Tell Nasser Buhani uh, all Buhani all right what do we all think about Nasser Buhani <laughs> so for Buhani. example he's the yeah. only other thing who says something mildly controversial or doesn't start what he didn't start the tour because he was recently in a in a bar uh, bar. Yeah, but see, brawl. everybody just thinks Buhani's crazy. This is not. This is this doesn't help the sport. He's this pretty quick. If you were, if he was anybody else on the team, yeah. he's kicked off the team. Yeah, but he's not Buhani. He's, he's with the uh, isn't he? Um, Marita. No. About Baron. The internet knows. Sorry. He rides for UCI professional the cycling Pliny team. Kofi. By the way, if you get a chance, have yourself a Pliny the Elder. We well worth the extra money. Okay, Jim. How do you save professional cycling? I'm going to answer this question for you, Ted. We're now four hours into our How podcast. do we save the sport of professional cycling? Is it shorter stages? Is it smaller teams? Is it... Here's the, fir the first three things cycling has to understand. One, they can't control the narrative. They, they, they've tried to control the narrative, and they've abandoned mainstream bicycle media in order to tell their own story. When the bicycling teams have, um, you know, sort of downplayed the, the media instead of embracing them, instead of opening up their stories, instead of saying, hey, we want you to come and see what we're doing and see who we are and, and be the, the curator and the, and, the, and the voice outward from, from within the sport, uh -huh. this, this, this fans get lost. They don't understand. If you, now, if you follow cycling, you can follow one team because they do a great job of, you know, running their Instagram. You follow all the teams on, you know, all the sky riders on their Instagram feed and the sky Instagram feed. And you think you get something with the team, but in order to do that, you'd have to do that for all the teams. But now mm -hmm. we just have them doing it for the big winning teams, which is always the case. Winners get, get all the attention, but it's not good for the long-term health of the sport. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we, you know, being an old media guy, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do we help these brand, these, 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 what's left of the outlets, the Velo news and the, and, and cycling tips and to, to be better at their job by giving them better access to the sport. Just purely better access, not purely, but you're saying like, go on the other side of the rope, get the photo of them in the kitchen, get the, yeah, I, what I'm, what I, I think the thing for me is like, 
you know, people stop following those sources of information because they can get the information somewhere else. But now the places that they're getting that information is not giving them anything. It's just pure schmack. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm having a great day. Here's right. Rider X from Team X on a bike ride with his girlfriend. Like, that's all well and good. But in the <laughs> long run, that's not good for the health of the sport. Someone mm-hmm. needs to be the, the, you know, the news. Someone mm-hmm. needs to be the, the voice of record for what's happening in sport right now. And who is that? Where is that source where, where we're getting, you know, the, 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 the look at who these people are and why they do the sport and what they're, you know, you, you know, follow Chris Froome and see that he's, you know, with his kid, but that doesn't, that doesn't tell us what in the past a journalist would, would parse for us in mm-hmm. a way that now, because those sources have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more pinched for time and their desperate chase for Instagram followers. And Twitter yeah, followers. how much is it down to the end user just having a really short attention span and being like, I want to see it in one, one square photo rather than reading an article. I don't, you know, the, I pick up the occasional European pro cycling magazine because the, Jim, you still, can't, you don't know how to read Italian. No, I, they, they do a couple of them in English. You okay. Can, you can get pro cycling. Fair. The European version. Yeah, but they the spell States words weird. $47. An Kalur. Okay, go on. Uh, you know, the, they're, they're still attempting. I mean, this is, I mean, we are talking about two, two separate things. How do we help pro cycling? How do we pro, help pro cycling in the States? Uh, completely. Yes. And so, which another question, you know, how do we develop female cycling? How do we uh, see the development? Of, yeah. And some of the female racing this year has just been phenomenal. If Absolutely. you're following female cycling this year, it's just the unbelievable. The, there's some unbelievable talent in the Corinne Rivera just yesterday. One, ah, uh, B- uh, Binda? Who doesn't root for her to win? My uh, gosh, so exciting! This, what she's brought to the sport. Goodness gracious! U twenty three Hawk Fox. Yeah, she won that. One of those prices. European things. All right. Well, let's consider that because this is an Engama trip, we're going to have an aperitivo here shortly to yes. pair well with our Plinies. Yes. For what it's worth, knowing that Jim's been on the road for a long time. I uh, brought Jim a taste of home by bringing him a delicious Pliny the Elder. Thankfully, TSA nor Portuguese Customs uh, took it from my suitcase. I'm very grateful for that, Ted. That's a delicious, delicious Wonderful. Treat. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm going to have a little maple syrup before I go to my aperitivo. Naturally, it pairs well with everything. Okay, three questions. It is water-soluble. One of everybody's. And I can tell you that because I found that out. Uh, just a quick sidebar. Uh-huh. I was at Sea Otter. And I'd gone up to the scratch lab booth to get myself a, you know, one of those delicate, lovely quinoa vegetable thingies. And Ted said that he'd put some untapped maple syrup out at the scratch lab. I should put a little maple syrup on my thing. And he put it out one of those little, you know, plastic ketchup things. So I went over there and I got my $82 scratch lab uh, quinoa salad in a, in a, in a little tiny cup. And I, I went to apply some maple syrup and I little gentle squeeze, a little gentle squeeze, a little gentle squeeze. And then the thing erupted all over my arm, my crotch, my foot. Because I, I it's was, water I was soluble. Untapped. I was untapped. I went back to Ted's booth and I said, Ted, I'm, I'm covered from head to toe in untapped maple syrup. He said, don't worry, Jim. This was a costly mistake. It's Don't water, worry, Jim. It's, it's water, water soluble. soluble. Which, A, wouldn't have happened in the first place if it was a gummy, gooey, uh, high fructose corn syrup, gelatinous goo. Oh, right, 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 yeah. And it cleaned up nice and good because it is water soluble. 
So I'm glad you picked up on that. You probably also noticed the nutrients is loaded with amino acids, electrolytes, and antioxidants, yada, yada, yada. Plus you have this like new hydration shit. Is this right? Yes. We have maple aid. Ah, maple aid. Oh my gosh. Also water soluble. Can't wait to try. And delightful. Okay. Three parter. One. You are somebody who rides your bike in a lot of places. You do it for work, and presumably you do it for a little bit of pleasure. One, what is your favorite place you have ridden a bike? Two, what is the number one place in which you would like to ride a bike? And number three, with whom, if you could choose anyone, living or otherwise, with whom would you like to ride a bicycle? Uh, uh, so uh, two weeks ago in Tuscany, uh, we were uh, had, a, I don't know, 10 guests at our lovely little bed and breakfast. And the woman asked me the same first question. She said, what is, you know, what's your, what's your favorite trip of all time? Is she Italian? She happened to have been, she was Chinese. She's from the Bay area. May. Hi, May. Uh, delightful woman who was on, uh, on a vacation with Are us. Are you saying hi to May or her name is hi, hi May? May. Hi, no, her name, her name is May. And I was saying, hello, May. Oh. Uh, I May. she's awesome. Uh, and I, oddly, I know it's going to sound sappy, but I said this one, uh, I, I find that I, um, I having ridden my bike in a lot of unbelievably beautiful places and a lot of really crappy places too, uh, up and down the Eastern seaboard and, and all Except across the Vermont. United States. And no, no, I love the riding of Vermont. West Virginia is amazing. Uh, there's even some lovely riding in Florida, oddly. Uh, huh. but, um, uh, you know, California, Arizona, um, and then, you know, Italy, uh, France, Spain, Portugal, uh, I, I, m the riding partners make everything different for me. If I, if I'm with people who are, who love the bike and, um, and are not, uh, and are, um, excited about being on the bike it's the best like i love riding in tuscany but this trip in particular it was the, one of the best trips i've ever been on because everybody was having the time of their lives and it just brought a whole different element to the ride uh that i love that was a very artistic answer and i appreciate it and i accept it but you're skewing pretty heavily towards question number three no, no. Question number three is actually if there's one person I could ride with right now would be my beautiful wife, Terry, oh. who is an unbelievably Hi, talented rider, was a triathlete when we were younger and um, is at home with our dog, Carter Whitney. Uh, she has uh, been gracious enough to allow me to be in Europe for what will be seven weeks before I see her. And, we, and to answer your question where I want to go, my mm -hmm. wife and I, uh, she's coming and um, she's upset because she's not going to be on an Agama trip because when she's able to come, there are no trips for us to be on. And she she is a little spoiled about these things. So we're doing a reconnaissance trip to Sardinia. Lovely uh, spot. Where Giorgio has made some photos and I have to go make sure that the, the pillows are fluffy enough and the food is good enough. And Terry, who, um, uh, has never been to Sardinia and neither have I, uh, and I are going, um, to, uh, make sure that it is in Gamba approved. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I have to say I'm excited about Sardinia. I had no idea. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Nice. Yeah. Beautiful island. I crashed uh, in the Tour de France there once. Ah, nice. Terrible. Nice. So, uh, so okay. As, as much as I appreciated your first answer, now I want a one-word answer. Go. What is the number one place you have ridden a bike? The, the number favorite one place you've ridden favorite place of all time. It's not my Vantu Eros. So, uh, what a crappy climb that is, <laughs> uh, it's bucket list, but it's stupid. Uh, gosh, that is the number one place. That is a tough one. Uh, 
TikTok, TikTok. I'd have to say Quincy, Marin. California. I'd have to say Marin. Marin. I'd have to say the you know uh, being able to ride out my door at work and go up and do the Seven Sisters, mm-hmm. uh, Mount Tam, Hawk uh, Hill. Great view of the the bridge there. Uh, well, or the thing that's fascinating about that is is it's different every single time. Unlike a lot of places, because of the fog and the just what can be shitty weather or beautiful weather, depending on not just not just day to day, but literally hour to hour. Uh, Marin is a, is you know is always a mystery, and I and I am lucky enough a lot of times to commute by bike from my house in Oakland into the city on ferry down the Embarcadero and across the Golden Gate Bridge into Sausalito for work and uh, the Golden Gate Bridge although um, not the greatest place to ride a bike I just feel so incredibly fortunate to live in the bay that is poetic and you are completely right riding across the bridge is a complete snarl it's a total pain in the ass people travel from all over the world in order to ride across the bridge. It is stunning. It is beautiful. Every cyclist. Thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars people pay to come to the Bay Area to walk across the bridge or ride across the bridge. And and for us as Bay Area people to complain that these Mm -hmm. people are clogging our bridges, it's it's ludicrous to me. Look at what a joy it is and what what a gift it is to be able to ride across that bridge. We are spoiled. Spoiled. We were spoiled here. We were Just looking like out the at the at the Atlantic Ocean from northern Portugal. Is that the Atlantic Ocean, Ted? Uh, if uh, I'm not mistaken, geographic. If you look closely, I don't know if you can see it. See, Baltimore, uh, a little bit farther to the right. No, you can see uh, Cape Cod right over there. Ah, Cape Cod. Cape Cod. Speaking of Cod, we're going to wrap up this podcast because we probably have a delicious serving of bacalao, which is Portuguese cod, coming up here shortly. Jim Merrithew, rubber down, heads up. I appreciate your time. Keep the rubber down. Keep your head up. That's about all I got. Jim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted.